Welcome to Ideas into Reality, a podcast to inspire everyone to take action to turn their ideas into reality. No matter what experience they have, where they live, or who they think they are right now. Each week, we introduce you to a founder that has taken their tiny flicker of an idea and done what it takes to bring it to reality. We also take a few minutes to dig into the how of some of the key lessons those founders have learned on their journey so that you can feel more confident in what to actually do as you start to take action on your idea. Ideas into Reality is hosted and produced by the team behind Canvas Coworking and Startup Toowoomba. So we'll be talking to founders from our local community here in regional Queensland, as well as some of the interesting folk that we have met during our travels around the globe. As you heard, Ideas into Reality is produced by the team behind Canvas Coworking, a not-for-profit, member-based association. We're a community of entrepreneurs, freelancers, business owners, and collaborative, community-focused individuals who want to be part of a supportive and connected ecosystem. Our members are why we exist, and each member brings unique value, experience, and character to our community. You can see who our members are on our website. Just head to canvascoworking.com.au forward slash members. We help our members access a variety of goods and services to grow scalable and sustainable businesses, such as discounts with Amazon, Stripe and HubSpot. We offer several membership options to suit the needs, budget and interests of our diverse community, with community membership starting at just $10 a month. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Ian Mason, our new entrepreneur-in-residence for the Flair Incubator. Ian shares a bit about his journey of becoming a serial entrepreneur and how that has inspired him to also take up the opportunity on multiple occasions to support other entrepreneurs to grow successful and sustainable businesses, including a little bit about his time establishing Virgin Startups in the UK, working with QUT Creative Enterprises here in Brisbane, and also with other regional startup programs in regional Australia. Then we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about Flair Incubator and why Ian chose to be part of Flair, why we asked him to be part of it, and also talk about the value of incubators and how Ian sees his experience being beneficial to the cohort that comes into Flair. So welcome, Ian. Really excited to have you with us today. Before I jump into my questions, I'm just going to get you to do a little intro of yourself. So tell us a bit about yourself and also about Rainbow Bridge Education. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. I have sort of two parts to my background that I think might be of interest to people listening. So uh, I guess first and foremost, I'm an entrepreneur. So I've started uh, 13 different businesses um, o- over the years now in lots of different sort of you know sectors of the economy, everything from publishing to education, um, some not-for-profits in there as well. And then running alongside that, um, you know, I kind of graduated from university as an economist, worked my way up through UK government and uh, became head of policy and public affairs at the London Chamber of Commerce just after the financial crisis, uh, advising government on small business policy and those sorts of things. And then uh, a combination of 
both of those uh, pieces of experience in my background uh, was probably what led to me being asked to create Virgin Startup, um, which is Sir, Sir Richard Branson's not-for-profit for entrepreneurs um, over in the UK. And uh, I grew that uh, along with a couple of colleagues to become the largest business support organization in the country, uh, working with about 11,000 entrepreneurs over the five years um, that I was there. Um, and then ever since then, I've been kind of traveling around the world, building entrepreneurship programs, uh, becoming EIR, entrepreneur in residence for programs in different parts of the world, uh, and obviously growing Rainbow Bridge. Um, and Rainbow Bridge is my 13th, which I hope is not a unlucky omen there. But it's, uh, it's a company that helps young children to learn to read. Um, so we provide textbooks or reading books, sorry, you know, worksheets, uh, apps, toys, games, videos, all these sorts of things. Um, that help young children to learn to read. So I've been doing that for about 18 months now, um, and we're sort of supplying uh, product to about 50 countries around the world at the moment, um, helping about a million children a month to learn to read. Um, so uh, uh, that's what's keeping me busy at the moment. It certainly sounds like enough to keep anyone busy, even not half of what you're doing. So I'm not sure how you do it. And I know from some conversations we've had that you're certainly not a nine to five worker. You don't necessarily clock off <laughs> at that time. You just roll from one country's operations to the next, I think. <laughs> so a blessing and a curse, I think. <laughs> That's it. I think we all dream of, you know, that international lifestyle of, of travelling around and doing things. But then, yeah, when you have to get up for that 2am conference call, it maybe doesn't seem quite so fun anymore. But still, if you love what you're doing, it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. So... As with any guest, I love to know a little bit more detail about how things started because we are talking ideas into reality, podcast name. So when you first got the idea for, and, and I'm going to say this business, take that as you will, <laughs> what, was, what was going on in your life? So what was the sort of scene? What was happening? Where were you? Yeah, sure. Well, I think, um, you know, I probably start way back at the beginning with the, the sort of the first business that was ever really successful, because, you know, you say the, the name of the podcast being ideas to reality. And, um, you know, being an entrepreneur, I suppose, is something that I always wanted to do. So kind of growing up, I used to read Richard Branson's books and, um, you know, thinking about what I might want to do when I leave school and um, didn't really you know, whilst knowing that that's what I wanted to do, I didn't really know how I was going to do that. Um, and obviously, I'm sure, you know, most of the people listening have ideas all the time that they think will make a good business. And it's, you know, it's common pub talk, isn't it? Oh, you should start a business doing that. Um, but actually doing it versus having the idea are two very, very different things. So, uh, you know, I think, um, um, I mean, I graduated uh, from university over in the UK and, you know, I still didn't really have a clue what my first business was going to be. Um, and I had a degree in economics, as I think I mentioned uh, before. Um, and I thought, right, OK, I'm going to start a website. I'm going to start a magazine online. Um, so technically, that was my first business, although I don't really think it qualifies as that because it never really made a huge amount of money. But uh, I used to write economics articles and sell advertising on Google. And um, well, I say sell advertising on Google. That was until um, I had a friend come to visit me that I hadn't seen for a while. And we sort of caught up over a few beers the night before. And I told him about this new website. It was the thing I really cared about at the moment and all these sorts of things. And the next day when he woke up in the morning, he decided to have a look at this website and clicked on one of the adverts. Um, and back then, if you clicked on an advert uh, on Google from the same IP address uh, that uh, you built the site from, you used to get banned. So I got banned from Google uh, advertising in the very uh, early part of 
that uh, that business, uh, which was great because it it forced me to rethink you know what I was doing in terms of a, a revenue model, which is not a phrase I would have used back then, but it's obviously one I would use now. And so um, I started to sell. Uh, I changed the, the types of things that we spoke about uh, in, in the uh, in the magazine. Um, so it went from sort of you know standard economic stuff, the benefits of a renewable energy. Um, and back then, uh, which is sort of 15 plus years ago, um, the UK didn't have a huge renewable energy uh, industry, I suppose. Whereas now it's sort of uh, one of the countries that's doing a better job of all those things. So back then it was kind of starting from a low base, lots of money for advertising. And as I was getting lots of people reading the magazine, it allowed me to start selling advertorials. And so that's how I made, made money after I got banned from Google. But not a huge amount of money. I saved up over 18 months. I think it amounted to about... Uh, I don't know, $25,000 or something like that. And, and that's all I'd managed to make, which obviously doesn't constitute a wage at all. And, uh, you know, at that point, that, that was the startup capital that I was lacking for bigger ideas. And so I closed, I closed the magazine down and then actually started a publishing company. So um, I had about a hundred writers working for me on that magazine, which I suppose makes it mildly successful. Lots of those people were freelancers. They'd come in, they'd write a few pieces, but they'd also do other things. So they would have books, uh, fiction, poetry, uh, whatever it might be. And I used to get lots of requests uh, for people saying, oh, it's really hard to get into the publishers to get book deals. So, you know, is there a way around that? How do we start doing it? And I guess rather inadvertently, and certainly wasn't advertised like this at the time, but I created one of the countries or maybe even one of the world's first self-publishing uh, companies. Um, so it's before you could go onto Amazon and kind of, uh, you know, upload a, a cover and upload your text and you'd be away selling it the next day. So we used to do a sort of uh, hybrid print on demand, sort of small stockholding uh, model. And we take authors and kind of give them their first opportunity and then allow them to use that as a springboard to go off and get book deals uh, in, in places. And, you know, I met a few really interesting uh, individuals that way, uh, some of whom I still work with to this day. But again, that never really made a huge amount of money either. And so, uh, you know, I think alongside doing that, I was still working. So at that point, I was working in the Chamber of Commerce Network, as I mentioned at the beginning. And I was going into schools, going in and talking about career opportunities and um, you know, what people might want to do for a job uh, in the future, which is part of my role. And it sort of appalled me that of the lack of quality careers advice that was in schools and the lack of link between what they were learning to help them pass exams and what that might mean for future jobs. And so in typical me fashion, thought, well, how hard can it be to have a go at doing something about that? And probably used a bit of the experience from both the uh, magazine and the publishing, uh, put the two together and created what I would call my first real business, which was called Spark. And that was a, uh, an education company that provided textbooks and workbooks and e-learning platforms uh, to, uh, to secondary schools, um, which would help kids to pass exams, but would also help them to understand what that actually meant for their future. And so um, uh, I guess, the, you know, the first business really was the first real business was kind of born out of uh, a combination of probably boredom um, and, and frustration and not being able to find something that I really wanted to do alongside, you know, through my job, actually seeing a need or at least a gap, I suppose, rather than a need. People sort of didn't really know that the advice could be better, I guess, just knew that it wasn't fantastic. Um, I thought, well, maybe I can fill that gap. So much in that. And I think it's one of the, the things that a lot of people don't always realise when they see someone successful in their business, just what that beginning journey was like and how it fumbled along and made its way and evolved and and you know the learnings come together so there's it's always great to hear those beginning stories and and also the fact that you did all of that whilst having a day job and a 
what I imagine was a reasonably important day job where they expected you to show up and and deliver (laughs) as well. So... Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, probably fumbled more than, uh, more than, you know, had a huge amount of success at that point, I think. Um, but I, I, you know, I do think it's important. That's why I like to talk about it, particularly, you know, in, in, in uh, you know, the roles that I have as entrepreneur in residence uh, for, for, for different places. And I think people need to be able to, I guess, relate to the journey that they're going through. And the idea that you know things might feel very small at the beginning, and you might feel like you're fumbling more than you're having successes, um, but actually that is all part of it. Um, and uh, you know, I think that really helps people to sort of understand where I'm coming from when I spend time with them in that capacity. Yeah, we know as well. Often, when people finish university, they don't really know what to do, and then if they get an idea, whether they've been to university or not, but get an idea. And they want to take some steps, but they don't always really know what to do. And I guess at university, even in the UK, they probably didn't teach you how to start a business and what to do and and think about that. So what steps did you take to actually learn how to make it a business when you got to that point? Because you said, you know, £25,000 or dollars perhaps wasn't enough to really consider it to be, you know, your living and and a business as such. So when you realised it needed to be a business and needed to be viable, what, what steps did you take to learn? Did you join an incubator or something? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, a, that's an awesome question because for a couple of reasons, they definitely did not teach that at school or university. Um, and that's the huge, I mean, I know things are, are very different now, I guess, in, in lots of places. Um, and there weren't really incubators or accelerators around. So there was an old service in the UK called Business Link, which uh, was essentially a network of advisors across the country that you could go and talk to. And I distinctly remember my first encounter with Business Link in Milo Clare, and I shan't say where I was living at the time, but I was uh, sort of taken to the office of the person I was supposed to be meeting with, only to find him fast asleep at his desk, right? Now, I always like to talk about that, A, because it's a funny story, but B, I think it's almost a bit of a metaphor for the way the service operated and, and, you know, is it effective? It didn't work. So what I did was, I mean, I did business studies uh, when I was going through secondary school because that was the only thing that I got that gave me sort of a basic level of knowledge about what I was supposed to be doing. And frankly, then learned as I went along, you know, so you, there, there weren't a huge amount of startup books then either. Like there were a few, but, you know, obviously now there's a million different startup books that you could read, which I also don't think is a good thing. Um, but, um, you know, it was kind of, well, what's that person over there doing that's interesting but I'm also, I like to do things my own way as well. So it's kind of discovering being able to do it for myself. And I think that really probably helped me to get ahead quicker just because I was willing to try anything out. So um, yeah, no, no real formal education of that nature as it were at the beginning. The try it and see method is I think one of my favorites because <laughs> even if someone advises you what to do until you actually start doing it, you still don't know if it'll actually work for you, if you can do it, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. I think I think I probably answer about 10% of every question I'm asked with those three words. Yeah. Try and see. Try and see. Yep. <laughs> They're my favorites. <laughs> Four words if we're being pedantic. <laughs> <laughs> it and runs together. <laughs> So on your journey as you've gone along, and obviously you've learned a lot along the way, I imagine there's some moments though that you're particularly proud of in in what you've done and and what you've achieved. Do you want to tell us a bit about what they might be? Yeah, sure. I think, um, I mean, to be honest with you, I, you know, one of the things that stands out for me is obviously having the opportunity to work for Richard Branson 
um, which uh, isn't necessarily a personal achievement in that way, I suppose. But, you know, I, I read his first book when I was seven, I think, seven or eight, something like that. And, um, you know, it was always an ambition to work for him and then to be able to have the opportunity to create a company on his behalf um, that then had the ability and capacity to support so many thousands of people across the country in the UK. And to genuinely, and it kind of comes back to your last question in the sense that there wasn't on there wasn't a huge amount of support for people that wanted to start a business, right? Um, and even if there was, it wasn't that good. And I sort of lived through that period where, you know, everybody was taking notice of startup. It became something that was cool. There were interesting people starting to do things, including people uh, like Sir Richard. And, um, you know, I think it was a, a really interesting time to be able to be part of that change. Um, because I think um, the phrase I always like to use is that you know anyone can start a business, but not everybody should. Whereas I think startup support typically is flipped around the other way. You know, so I think you know if a person has a, an ambition to make a living for themselves by starting a business, then I think we should support that as much as we possibly can. Um, and it doesn't matter where you know what they're doing, obviously provided it's legal and so on. But you know, I think that that sort of mentality is a very very different to where we find ourselves. And I think I. You know, played a big role in, in changing that mentality in, in certainly in the UK um, over that period. So that's probably one of the, the key things for me, just because he was always my, my boyhood hero. And then I think, I guess, coming back to my own businesses, uh, I think doing it more than once for me was a, a, a sort of a vindication, you know, having a, you know, starting something and making it a success, just in the sense that it was never really about any particular passion I had. You know, I didn't particularly like education. I never particularly set out to help people to pass exams as valuable as, uh, you know, I hope that's been for the people that have used the resources we created. It was more a question of, I just wanted to start businesses and have a bit of fun and do some interesting things. And so, you know, doing it and saying, oh, actually that, that didn't go so badly and it not being a fluke. I think was probably quite a proud moment, I guess. Uh, and then just more lately, you know, we're, we're getting some really interesting numbers with this this new business, Rainbow Bridge Education, you know, a million children a month reading our resources, using our apps, playing with our games, ordering them, et cetera. And that's, um, you know, again, that's very rewarding as well because it's the first time I've started something where I've done it globally. Um, you know, I always wondered whether that was a bit of a fallacy, whether you, you know, people talk about going global from day one, but actually uh, wanted to prove it to myself that it was um, absolutely 100% possible. Um, and, you know, I think we managed to do that. So we sort of, I think I said, products sold in 50 countries across the world at the moment, but also, um, you know, a presence in the main four English speaking countries, or I say main four, so the, the US, the UK, uh, Australia and New Zealand. Um, so, um you know, I think being able to do that and to sort of lead a global team uh, rather than just people that sit in the office with me, um, it, you know, is also quite quite a proud moment, I think. It is one of those things that it's it's almost like, you know, we talk about startups and unicorns and, and people say, you know, I don't want to aim to be a unicorn, I want to be a zebra because zebras are real and unicorns are just mythical. But the the global from day one is is a thing, you know, that's something that people go, oh, it, you can't do that. And it's like, well, actually you can. And particularly if, as you said, it wasn't your first go around, you know, you'd, yes. you'd ridden this horse a few times before and learnt a few different things along the way and you were able to piece those things together and actually make it happen and make it successful. And it's not to say someone probably couldn't do it the first time around, but that would be good fortune, I think, as opposed to based on their learning. So, Right. Yeah, I think so. And I think kind of even when 
um, you know, people try and help you and support you with advice and guidance and so on. It obviously helps if you've, uh, you know, if you've had a go before. Um, I think, um, you know, it comes with a downside in the sense that, um, you know, you're always, you're always on because somebody's always awake. Um, and I think that actually does take its toll. Um, but it doesn't, you know, running a business globally doesn't necessarily have to mean having staff in different countries, right? Because as long as you've got customers and you've got partners there that can act on your behalf and so on, that's all reasonably straightforward to set up, particularly if you're speaking the same language and all these sorts of things. And even then it's, you can always find somebody to help you. So, um, it, it's very much possible, and I think a lot more people should be looking at the opportunities that it affords, just simply because technology is is so much more advanced now, even than it was 10 years ago, um, to facilitate all of that happening. Um, and um, it's almost like you'd be silly not to at least start by thinking about what the possibilities are across the world and working back from there to you know what you have to do first to take advantage of those things. And I think for, well, for you and I both, we're so fortunate to be born in an English-speaking country that we do kind of have the monopoly on language in, in a global setting that people, so many people speak English either as their first language or another language, that yes. there is that ability to to go as opposed to speaking a language that maybe only a handful of spe- people speak um, quite quite naturally and natively. So yeah, yeah, yeah great, great point. So obviously you're still quite young. You have a, a young family, so you're not nearing the end of your journey. This is obviously a, a road that's that's long, probably a bit windy. Um, but is there something on your horizon? other than flair um, that that you're working on or looking forward to that you can share with us? Yeah, well, I think, um, first of all, you're very kind, and I will do this podcast many, many times for that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think, um, you know, the there are a huge number of opportunities with Rainbow Bridge in terms of what the future holds. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, um, it's a wonderful thing to be able to support people to learn to read. Um, but I think that's sort of just the beginning, um, because, uh, you know, without wanting to quote too many people, it does take a village to educate a child and to raise a child. Um, and I think we've sort of lost focus on what that actually means, um, you know, uh, as the years have gone by. Um, and, you know, the key the key role of, or where I see the key role of the company being going forward is how we engage parents more um, in that process um, and, and make better use of the opportunities that they have within the education system um, by enhancing that at home. And doing that in a way that parents find accessible because, you know, it's just not at the moment. You know, you pick up resources, um, even when you have a background in whatever particular subject you want to teach them. uh, It doesn't mean that you have that context of what's happening at school. Um, You know, teachers are very busy. They've got their own targets. They've got their own methodology. But, you know, I had a number of teachers say to me over the years, um, you know, it would be better if they didn't know anything when they come into primary school because they've got a blank canvas to work with. Now, I can see that mentality um, and I can understand where it's coming from, um, but surely that can't be right. Surely we can do a bit better than that, you know? Um, And so um, I think that's the thing that's driving me the most at the moment. Um, And then the ability to understand how people learn. So the more they engage with our products, the more data we capture. And then we get some really interesting um, scenarios there. So I think that's where the real value will come in the company if I'm able to make a a genuine success of it. Um, so, So very much focused on that. Um, and then I think um, 
you know, I absolutely love um, working with entrepreneurs. I just love it. Um, it's my favorite thing to do, um, even probably more so than starting up, which I've done an awful, awful lot of times now. Um, and I think that's because I think everybody should have the opportunity um, to find success in ways uh, that are meaningful to them. Um, and as I said before, you know, and in fact, to use your analogy, if you're looking to build a unicorn, great, more than happy to help someone to get to that point. Um, but equally, if you're looking to make a living for yourself, um, then uh, I see that as being equally, if not more valuable. Um, and I don't hear enough people saying that. Um, and so uh, I think that's probably uh, the thing that gets me out of bed each day. Well, I think we've definitely hired the right person because I'm pretty sure we're <laughs> on the same page there. So that's really good. And and it's funny, um, you know, having having started business and then also helping other people start business, I kind of liken it to having a child versus having a grandchild. It's kind of like <laughs> I'm, I'm solely responsible for this one. And over here, I care a lot, but someone else is in the middle and they're actually fully responsible. And yes. I just, I get to, you know, dote on them and, and, you know, talk all about them and show pretty pictures and, and help and suggest things along the way. But at the end of the day, they go home with somebody else. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. As long as you don't get frustrated with the way the children are being raised. <laughs> well, that does happen a little bit sometimes too, but I've learned to breathe and let it go. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, that's good. <laughs> now, obviously with your role coming in uh, to, to Flair as our EIR, you're going to get this question a fair bit. And I've I'm sure you've had it in the past many, many, many times where someone says, you know, I've got this idea. Um, what should I do? And and you you obviously want to impart some advice and there's a million things that they're going to need to do. But what's the first thing that you think someone with an idea needs to do? Yep. Um, I always try uh, whenever I work with, uh, you know, emerging founders or founders or whatever, uh, not to use jargon. So I do try and avoid that whenever I possibly can. Um, but there is one word that is really valuable um, and that's validate. Right. Um, and I think at the moment, you know, for a lot of people, it's a, a bit of a mythical phrase in terms of, oh, I don't have time for that. I just want to get on with it, which you know, I may have been guilty of back in the day uh, as well. Um, although I did it a lot more without really knowing that's what I was doing, maybe before people started coining the phrase quite as often as, as they do now. Um, but it, it means testing every single assumption that you have. Right. So. Um, if you have an idea, I'm sure you can tell it to me in five minutes, you can tell it to me in 50 minutes because people tend to be passionate about their ideas, um, which means there's an awful lot of things to test. Um, so you have to figure out ways of testing the underlying. Well, first of all, you actually have to figure out what underlying assumptions you're making uh, when you pitch this new idea to me. And then you have to work out, um, you know, what are the, how, what's the best possible way of testing those ideas and then go away and do little tests. Um, and I think that's that's a skill that kind of stays with you as you're growing a business as well, because um, you might have something that's existing, but you should treat new things that you do um, as though it were the first time you were doing them and behave in the same way. Um, so validate, validate, validate absolutely is the, the, the first thing that a person should do when they've got an idea. And again, that aligns quite nicely. Validation board is one of my favourite tools and post-it notes of every assumption that you have. We can fill the whole wall. It's all good. <laughs> so, no, that's, that's great. Now, 
For for people who are listening, who are interested in Flair, obviously they may have the chance to connect with you through that and, and obviously learn a lot more from your experience and wisdom. For others who may not be in a position that that program is going to be of interest to them, but might still want to follow what you're doing or, you know, connect with you in some way, how is it best for them to do that? Sure. I guess the first thing to say is, you know, I guess a bit of a plug in the sense that, um, you know, people that want to get involved in Flare, um, they're going to get really practical, usable, uh, hands-on advice. Um, so as I said before, I don't, I don't like the jargon. I try to avoid using it where I possibly can. Um, I think people with any intention starting out, it's not important um, that uh, you have a big lofty goal for the future of the business. It's important that you understand what you'd like to achieve from it. Uh, and even if you don't, maybe that's that's one of the first things perhaps we can help people with. But uh, so I guess the first thing is, you know, anybody through the door um, that has an idea of what they'd like to achieve doesn't have to be, uh, you know, huge uh, in order to be considered. Um, and then the second thing would be, as I say, you know, practical hands on advice. Um, it's things I've tried a million times before, things I've seen people do a million times before. Uh, again, 11,000 businesses passing through the doors at Virgin Startup in five years, for example, and countless things before and since. Um, so those are the first things I'd say. So if you're in a position that you think Flair is of interest, then please do uh, pop that application. Um, and then in terms of getting in touch, I mean, I have, I have a LinkedIn profile, which you can search uh, for, and you're welcome to reach out to me. Uh, and then likewise with a, with a Twitter account as well. Um, and that's probably the best way of, uh, of starting that conversation. Uh, yeah, more than happy to have conversations with people that are looking for a bit of advice or, or whatever it might be. That is great. Before I jump into a few questions a little bit more specific to Flair, so anyone who isn't interested can just hang on for one more minute and then you can drop away because um, we'll talk a bit more about Flair. Um, but I just want to know, for those people who are listening, is there anything that they can do to help you at this point in time with Rainbow Bridge Education or something else that you're working on? Oh, that's a really interesting, thoughtful question. Thank you. Um, well, I guess um, the main thing really, uh, you know, anybody that um, – uh, that has children or knows parents of children uh, that are looking for, um, uh, you know, I guess, either gift ideas, maybe, um, you know, because there's plenty of gifts that you can buy, or parents that are perhaps struggling to know um, how to, um, uh, how to start the process of teaching the child to read. Um, and obviously, the process of teaching a child to read can start from a very early age. Um, so we have a whole series of uh, videos on our YouTube channel that are completely free for people to, to access. Um, and, uh, you know, they've proved quite popular um, over the last couple of years. Um, so they're more than welcome to have a look at those, as I say, gift ideas, et cetera. Or if there are teachers listening um, that would like uh, either some advice or uh, perhaps to bring some of the books into, into their schools um, and then, then to reach out. Um, and any parents that have insights. So what have you struggled with? And, um, you know, what would you like to see uh, as a tool that might be able to help you or uh, any anecdotes or anything like that, really? Um, then that would also be wonderful. And I imagine over the last couple of months, as a lot more parents have been a lot more actively involved with their children's learning because they've been homeschooling them, uh, that there'll be a lot of parents probably reaching out going, wow, I didn't actually realise that my child, you know, cannot read or, or, you know, cannot read well, or maybe doesn't comprehend what they're reading, um, that would be looking for that support now that it's been perhaps more... Uh, pulled in front of their their attention 
I absolutely, and I think it's exposed a number of different flaws. This is a very scary statistic, which um, I'm going to quote you a number. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same here as it is in other parts of the world, but it's roughly in, in this region. Something like 66% of children that go to school can't read before they go. Right. And that's a huge barrier because, of course, you're not just learning to read when you start school. Yeah. You're learning to do maths or you're learning, I don't know, science experiments or you're trying to read road signs or um, what the teacher writes on the board and all these sorts of things. Um, and it, the biggest barrier to children's progression uh, when they're in sort of early years, primary education is a lack of ability to read. Um, so it's not just the immediate can't read a book that's an issue. It's actually what else are they missing out on? Uh, during that time. Um, so absolutely, I think uh, it's exposed the fact that um, there is a huge disconnect between schools and parents, which I knew instinctively already, and I'm sure lots of people listening also did. Um, but, you know, if I told you a sample size of 150,000 people that have been using my products in the month of May, I think, um, there was only one platform uh, that had any greater market share than 6%, in fact, greater than 4%. Um, which tells you there's lots of different education companies springing up that are looking to um, try and support home learning or support homework or support schools in different ways. Um, but there's no one that's really got it right yet. Um, and so apart from uh, schools that are particularly well organized, um, there's been a lot of, uh, how can I say, feedback from both parents and schools talking about how chaotic it was trying to uh, you know, organize all the virtual learning during the lockdown. And so on. Um, so there's a whole load of problems there. Uh, in the education system and that's just the tip of the iceberg um so yes well sometimes good things come from bad things and maybe that will be it that more parents will be at least aware and hopefully take some action to help their children learn now so that they can learn easier in the future yep Absolutely. And, you know, education companies have got to do a better job of providing things that are accessible to parents because they're just not at the moment. So as someone with grown-up children, I'm kind of glad I'm not there anymore. I'm moving into that <laughs> grandparent phase, although not yet. No grandbabies yet, but <laughs> that will be next. <laughs> and presumably no pressure for anyone listening as well. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> Take your time, girls. <laughs> good. All righty. So I do want to jump into a couple of questions specific to Flair because we are super excited, like so beyond excited to have this program actually underway. And I realise it's not underway, underway, but it's open for applications now. And um, and obviously when this podcast goes to air, it will be in week two of applications. So hopefully we'll have a few um, rolling in by then. But as the EIR, so Entrepreneur in Residence, Expert in Residence, whatever we want to call it, um, you've taken on this role and, and you know, we're based in Toowoomba, you're not. Um, I've, I've had this feedback from probably more than one person, so we'll address it today. Um, it's a female-focused program. I'm going to specify that it's not a women's only program, um, but you are not female <laughs> and, and it's regional and you're, you know, you don't live in the regions um, of, of Australia at the moment. Um, not to say you won't in the future because maybe you'll love Toowoomba and you'll move here. But, um, you know, why, why did, when I asked you to, to be our EIR, why did you say yes? Oh, very good question. All, all very good observations from wherever they've come from. I, I guess there's a few things really. Um, first of all, um, I think it's really, really important to make, and again, I make the same point that I made earlier in this, this podcast, um, that 
we do more to make sure that entrepreneurship is something that's a possibility for everybody. Um, and you can do that by changing the tone and the narrative around startup, reducing the jargon and the, the sort of the boys club and all these sorts of things that definitely exist across the world, um, not just not just in the big cities here. Um, and, and to be able to set a different tone, you need to be able to uh, work in different parts of the world to play a role in doing that. Um, and so um, that's not just a, you know me leaving the UK and I've, I've run programs in China and Germany and Italy and Turkey and the States and um, you know a whole, a whole load of other places um, and obviously you know plenty in Australia since I've moved here um, but it's also about um, making sure that it's something everybody can access okay and again you know we take the regional example um, I have toured um, regional Australia um, fairly extensively since I got here so you know I've been to places like I have been obviously to Toowoomba we've met before of course um, but you know St George and Roma and Dolby and down to places like Armadale and Moree and uh, Tamworth and uh, you know, uh, lots and lots of other places as well, uh, up and down, certainly New South Wales and, 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 and um, uh, Queensland. Um, and then in the UK, you know, uh, the majority of people um, that got support from Virgin Startup uh, were outside of London, uh, which I, obviously I know it's a much smaller country, uh, but the mentality of London being the centre of the universe versus the rest of the country is a very real problem. Um, and so we made a point of building um, our support outside of the capital as well. Um, so I guess, you know, from a regional perspective, why do I think that's important? Because good ideas can come from anywhere. Good people can come from anywhere. Uh, and I also don't think that, um, uh, people that don't live in the big metropolises, particularly in this country, from my experience so far, um, get, um, uh, as good an offering as the people that do. And that, that surely can't be right. And I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, you, you've put this together as a, as an incubator as well. Um, then coming back to your question around gender, you know, again, that's really important too. Um, someone that's good at working with startups, uh, you know, can be male, can be female. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, in my, my, from my perspective, if you're good at it, that means you're good at relating to people. If you're good at relating to people, you shouldn't be good at relating to just one gender. Um, so, for example, at Virgin Startup, um, you know, I think the, the average in terms of female participation in a program like that in the, the UK is about 18%. Um, by the time I left, I think we were at 41% uh, participants that were female founders. Um, so, you know, yes, that's partly about, um, you know, kind of increasing exposure to successful female entrepreneurs, but it's also about building programs and, uh, you know, using different formats that um, are respectful of perhaps, uh, you know, different agendas during the day, running classes at different times of the day, um, not not being that kind of that macho sort of um uh, culture that you find within startup communities, which is hugely off-putting to me, never mind to uh, a lot of females that might be listening. Um, being down to earth, being approachable um, and, and not sort of being, um, how can I put it, um, just not part of that boys club. And I think that makes a huge difference. Um, so um, uh, I think all of those things um, are reasons why I'd like to think I'm you know, pretty successful at working uh, both regionally and uh, with female founders. Um, I, I, you know, even here in Brisbane, I think uh, uh, I'm looking outside the door now and uh, there's a business that I started working with when I was here in 2018 for the first time. Um, it started a fashion label for female cyclists um, and she's one of the most successful companies that's ever come through uh, the programs uh, here at QUT, uh, which is where I'm sat at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, 
as I said, I've been working exclusively with her since then as well. So uh, I think it's a, a couple of things, the passion, different approach, um, and, uh, you know, being down to earth and approachable, which I think makes a huge difference. I hope that sort of answers your question. It does. That's good. And I'm, I'm very satisfied with all of those answers. And I hope that everyone listening does understand that and that for us, it was it was a really conscious decision. Um, you know, we we talked to quite a lot of people about the EIR role, and and certainly didn't you know didn't take that um, obligation to put someone into that position lightly. It was something that we considered a lot, and and the feedback that I've received, you know, from a few people was, well, why didn't you choose a woman? Uh, and and I do want to address that because. One of the things that I see and and feel as well within the startup ecosystem here in Australia, but also even globally, is um, that most of the people who are in it are looking for you know an equal opportunity to represent themselves. They don't want something just because they're a woman. They want something because they're they're good at it. They've done the work. They've you know put in the effort. Um, they've taken action and and done that, and then they've received their award. Um, so for us, I think with this program, we want that to be recognised throughout the entire program. That it's not just um, a woman got this job because it's a woman's program. Um, and whilst we talk to a number of women about the role. Um, and, uh, you know, not to say that there wasn't anyone who would have been suitable, um, but for what we were looking for, um, I found that, yeah, there, you know, there were, were different elements and uh, I wanted it to be quite clear that whilst it's a female founder focused program, it's, it's that it's a female founder, not women only. So there might be two or three founders in that company and one of them may be female, but the others may not. Um, they're all welcome <laughs> to be part of this program. So uh, I do want to make that really clear because we don't want to exclude anyone. We want to include everyone who's part of that team and and bring it all together. So yeah, hopefully that answers the question for anyone who may be sitting at home thinking about that um, when they're looking at the program. So the other thing that I would like to hear um, your perspective on is what value you see um, Flare in particular, but incubators or accelerator programs giving to the participants of the program. So if someone's thinking, why should I join an incubator or an accelerator, um, obviously of which Flare is is one, um, what what value do you see in you know being part of a cohort and going through a structured style program? Yeah, sure. So I think, I mean, the word you use there that's most pertinent for me is structure, right? So I think, um, again, as I said before, having done, uh, you know, a number of different startups myself, seen lots of people do them as well. Um, I really do think there is a process. There really is a, a you know, a methodology behind how you do it successfully. Um, and that's not to say that it's, you know, really easy, follow these 10 steps and suddenly you have a startup. That's obviously not how, how it works. Um, but there's a very distinct methodology that you go through with each one of them. You miss a step, you'll have a problem, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I think, um, you know, the main benefit of coming through an incubator accelerator is um, because you get that structured process. Um, you get it taught by somebody that's done it before a number of different times. You get lots of expertise in terms of mentors and different perspectives, which is always useful because, you know, no one person's opinion uh, is ever going to be right 100% of the time, particularly in, in, in a startup. 
Um, so I guess it's the structure to start off with. Then it's the kind of, um, uh, you know, whether you're highly motivated as an individual or not, having a group of people, all of whom are supposed to do the same thing at the same time, uh, makes you do it, right? Full stop, it just does. Even me, who, who, who drives himself uh, probably more than most people would, I assume. Um, you know, so, you know, if people are supposed to validate certain things by next week, for example, um, you know, no one wants to be the person that doesn't do the homework, so to speak. Um, and everybody wants to be, um, I, I suppose, uh, you know, showing up in a good light when it comes to results as well. Um, so the person that puts the most work in through an incubator, uh, it becomes absolutely obvious and no one wants to kind of get left behind. Uh, so I think it's a, a degree of motivation there. So structure and motivation. Um, cohorts are very supportive of each other. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen this a number of different times, but the, you get the value from the mentors, of course. Um, and, and, and the experts that are brought in, the EIR and all these sorts of things. Um, but you'll probably end up getting most value from the people that you're in there with uh, because you'll probably still be in touch with them in a few years' time. Um, you'll be trading ideas. They will, of course, know your business better than most people because you've been through the same program. Um, so they're more likely to make connections that are useful or see news articles that are useful or um, whatever it might be. Um, and that kind of support, and because, of course, you're going through the same thing at the same time, um, it becomes invaluable. Uh, you, you've got something to, you can relate to each other in a much deeper and meaningful uh, way uh, that perhaps you could do with uh, even friends and family um, because no one else really knows what it's like. Um, so when I think you put all those three things together, that's that's where the value is for me. It's you know the structure, it's the motivation, and it's the support. Great. And we've run a number of programs over the last five years that we've been operating and the cohort, is is where we see those you know ongoing connections and it's not to say that there's not ongoing relationships with mentors as well but the cohort you know they they talk about each other they know what's going on um, I often hear things from someone else in the cohort telling me what someone else just did because you know they caught up for a coffee or something and I hadn't um, hadn't caught up with them for a little while so you know it's it's really wonderful and and lovely to see that and yeah couldn't agree more about the accountability piece the you know there's a task to be done I better get that done because it's important for my business but also I have to like I said, I would, and, and I don't want to be the one who stands there next week and, and says I didn't do it. So Absolutely. Um, I might stand there and say, actually, I learned that I need to learn more or what I tried didn't work, but I don't want to say I didn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. And even when things don't work, that's valuable information for everybody else. So that's not sort of a success or failure thing. It's kind of you only move forward by doing it. Uh, I guess that's what the accountability piece does for you as well. Yeah, that's it. I know we've probably covered this um, all throughout uh, our chat today, uh, but maybe if we can just get you to touch on a few of the key things that you think your experience, your networks, your, you know, the sectors that you've worked in, where you feel that you will add real value to this particular program for, for the cohort that comes in. Yep, sure. So I think, um, first of all, again, it goes back to the, the, the word structure. Um, so, um, again, you know, I, as I said before, I have a strong belief that there is a methodology for, you know, for, for making a successful startup. Um, and I think, it, you know, it needs to be followed. Um, and then, you know, you just sort of um, you need a bit of skill to be able to pull it off. But that's obviously something that can be learned. So um, very much of that mindset. Um, so I think that's the first thing I think. Um, Along with that structure and, and, and approach uh, comes 
um, I guess the experience of having seen it being done, uh, you know, lots of different times over uh, in lots of different sectors. So I've never really specialized in one area, for example. So, okay, two of my major successes uh, in terms of startups have been with education businesses, but, you know, equally I've run events, companies and not-for-profits and publishing and all the other things we talked about earlier on. Um, so I have kind of experienced quite broadly and in different cultures as well, which I also think is quite useful. Um, so I guess that would be the main thing. Then, you know, building on top of that, um, uh, I guess that level of practicality in the way that I talk to people and approachability. And again, I can't overstate how important I think that actually is. So, um, you know, if I was to run a masterclass, for example, as part of this, it's not going to be something that's, you know, it, yes, it's grounded in kind of academic thinking, um, but it's not a university lecture. You know, it's sort of here's a small amount of theory, but here's how you actually apply it within context, within the context of your own business, uh, which I think you don't get enough of um, from what I've seen. Um, so, you know, the practical element, go away and work on these things tomorrow using this advice. Um, and, and I think that's 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 certainly very valuable, I think. Um, and then, you know, the third thing then is you know, that international perspective. Um, so um, it's not just that I have worked with entrepreneurs across the world. It's also that I specifically have created and run programs to support people uh, that want to, if we're going to use the word export. Um, so how do you take your business and, and either set something up in a different country or simply just sell product to that country? Um, and so the most recent example of that, for example, was... Um, uh, I took a, a group of FMCG businesses from Queensland. Um, and you might just put... say what FMCG is for everyone listening at home. Yeah, see, there you go. <laughs> Mr. I don't use jargon. Yeah, okay. Um, Fast-moving consumer goods. So it's food and drink, uh, skincare, health, baby, beauty, all these sorts of things. Um, what you'd find in a supermarket, I guess, uh, is probably a good rule of thumb. Um, and we took a group of businesses from Queensland who were you know, reasonably well-established in Australia, uh, put them through a program to help them understand how to strategically enter new markets. Um, and then at the end of that, put on a trade mission uh, to the UK um, and kind of built a whole series of connections, workshops um, and pitching opportunities for those businesses over in the UK uh, across a, a, you know, a two week period. So I guess a trade mission on steroids is how I've been colloquially describing that. Um, so, you know, you get that international perspective as well. And, and how to sort of make connections overseas, um, you know, which countries might be best for you, how to enter markets, all these sorts of things. Um, and I know that, you, you know, looking for businesses with that kind of uh, potential is something that you're looking for in uh, flair candidates as well. Um, so those three things probably the big strengths. Wonderful. And again, you know, from the perspective of us establishing Flair, and this is the first uh, first running of Flair Incubator as a program designed intentionally for those who are aspiring to go into an international market. It was really important for us to um, find people to be part of our team who have that experience, who've you know, put their feet on the ground in multiple countries and and learn what it's like. So in addition, obviously, to yourself, we've got uh, a whole panel of mentors on hand that we'll be pulling in as required from different countries or different industries to tap into who are, are similar in that way, that they know what it's like uh, to actually do business in that country, whether they reside there or, or not, and and have those networks, have those connections, can you know introduce you to the people um, that that you need to talk to, and I think that is one of the the 
the valuable parts of being part of a program like this as well is those introductions and connections and the the warmth that comes with that as well, that it's not just this cold call to somebody and and hopeful that they'll, you know, do what they say they'll do, um, but people who are invested in the success of the the program for what it brings to female-led companies in Australia, particularly in regional Australia, and the potential that they have and wanting to support them because that's who they are. So, yeah, really, um, really great to see you part of that and and our other mentors, of which um, I, I'm not certain that we'll publish the whole list because it's a little bit scary and we also really value all of their time. Um, so we'll we'll draw on them when we need to, but we, we might share a few of them uh, ahead of time. But one of the, I guess, key parts for us with Flair is to make sure that we really do um, tailor the program structure and introductions to suit the participants who come into the program and and make sure that we're delivering what they need as opposed to a you know here's his 10 mentors and they're going to help you regardless of what you're doing and where you want to go in the world <laughs> so we want want to make sure that that's there and I think one of the words you mentioned as well that I'm just going to um, circle back around to is around culture and the fact that if you're doing business internationally, you have to understand and respect the culture of the country that you're dealing with. And sometimes what you think is how things are done there isn't always right. So having access to people in country um, or with a lot of experience dealing with that country is really, really valuable as well. So that's what we're offering too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's even sort of... um you know, we often think of the English speaking countries as, you know, you can go there and because you have the same language, it, it's automatically, uh, you know, uh, uh, easier or easier, I suppose. Um, but if you think about it, sort of coming from me, coming from the UK to Australia, um, some of the things that I've been doing here, I've had a couple of people pull me up on, oh, that that image is a little bit more uh, sort of European and, and, and British uh, than you might find on an, on an equivalent Australian website, for example. So even just sort of things like, imagery and tone of voice in children's books and uh you know references and things like that you, you have to delve very deeply um depending on what your business is obviously into those sorts of things in order to make it fit culturally as well yes i imagine if you're doing a, a breakfast scene that you want to make sure you've got vegemite on the table and not marmite or something <laughs> like that <laughs> wonderful awesome well look thanks so much ian i really appreciate your time today uh, having a chat through all of this, really looking forward to the program, having you involved, seeing, you know, the teams that that come through the program and what they achieve as well and, and really glad that you're on the journey with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. As I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Ideas Into Reality episode and we hope that you enjoyed learning about our founders' journey and got a couple of takeaways from the lesson learned that will help end the flames of your idea. Assuming you did, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and let your friends know too. They might just be sitting on an idea that you do not even know about yet. You can find out more about Canvas Coworking and Startup Toowoomba by visiting our websites, canvascoworking.com.au and startuptoowoomba.com.au or finding us on pretty much any social media platform. My name is Joy Taylor 
and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey and I look forward to introducing you to our next guest in our next episode. Thank you.